When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, I'm Mark Nicholas and this is Not Just Cricket, the podcast that leans on the great game but is not necessarily dominated by it, and certainly not this week. Few British actors have conquered America with quite the intensity and integration achieved by Damien Lewis. An old Etonian whose foray into Shakespeare has moved to something altogether more Machiavellian these days, indeed a series of emotionally traumatic roles that are or have been at once morally ambiguous and sinister. Come to think of it, on the subject of Shakespeare, one reviewer described his performance as Henry VIII in Wolf Hall as cordial but deadly. Well, that works for Nicholas Brody and Bobby Axelrod too, where the American accent is as perfect as the predatorial instinct. Demo, welcome. Tell me, a young boy, mad about sport, mad about... Well, you must have been mad about the theatre from quite a young age. Which of the two grabbed you most when you were just a child? Well, you know, like you, I was at boarding schools from an early age. And whatever you have to say about going away to boarding schools at such a young age, there is everything there for you to do. So any free time, I was out on what we call the patch, our playing fields, effectively. So I played a lot of sport, cricket, rugby, football. We had our own little golf course that went in and out of our rugby pitches and our cricket fields. There was nothing to tell apart the fairways or the greens, except that somewhere at the end of your shot, there was a baked bean tin which had been cut into the ground. That's what you had to try and get the ball into. But we also had a very enthusiastic drama teacher and this what now seems incredibly old-fashioned, but this tradition of putting on a Gilbert and Sullivan musical every summer term. And so by the time I'd left school by the age of 13. I'd already been in five Gilbert and Sullivan musicals. Not not, not everyone can say that. And we did plays in Greek because it was a classical education. We did plays in French and we did Shakespeare. And so I was was doing lots of everything. So a little little birdie tells me that you were 12th man for Eton in the famous Eaton-Harrow match at Lord's. So if you were only 12th man, I'm sad that you weren't chosen in the team, but fascinated to know whether you got onto the path. <laughs> well, you know, one of my oldest friends, who I had actually been at school with since I was eight, was asked to play short leg for a while and summons me from the pavilion for a box and a couple of shin pads. And so I went out, duly delivered the box and the shin pads, went back in and about 15 quite sweaty overs later was summoned back out to pick up said box and I then left with a very sweaty box and, and, <laughs> well, it. and uh, so that was it. that was my that was my time on on the great green grass of Lords. Well then you go straight to Guildhall School of Music and Drama what 
I was thinking about it myself, really. I mean, seeing your move into drama school and the very different people you would come across in that life. And I remember leaving private school Bradfield, I mentioned earlier, and going into a county cricket dressing room yeah. with very different people and attitudes. And, of course, you do, when you come out of private school, have a level of, I suppose, privilege and confidence that other people see as a threat. And uh, I had advice from one or two senior guys to lie low a while, you know, don't put yourself about too much type of thing. Yes, no, no question. No question you can come out of a school like the ones we went to and you can name a handful of others too. And you do have a confidence about you. That, that confidence is instilled in you. It's not when it's um, perverted in any way, it becomes entitlement, it becomes arrogance. I was never allowed to be those things by my parents who just said, you turn into one of those people and, you know, you hear it from us. Your life will be miserable. You're not going to turn into someone like that. And just because you're privileged enough to be at that school, understand your privilege and um, concentrate on being a good guy, being a nice person. Mm. But you do come out with a, with a precociousness which can, I think, rub people up the wrong way. No question if you're not careful to manage it. Yeah. Uh, we met at a charity cricket match, uh, and and you were born around the corner from Lords, spitting distance, literally. I'd, you seem to love cricket, really understand it. Test cricket's important to you. When you pop into the commentary box on occasions the last few summers, you sit down and you watch the game. You ask questions about the intricacies of the game. Yeah, I mean, look, I was, I am, was, always, have been a totally average cricketer. My my off drive is second to none for style, but it, it doesn't, doesn't, not often necessarily near where the ball is. You know, and I went to Lord's cricket coaching, Easter coaching, like thousands of young boys and girls have been like me over the years. There yeah. was a brief moment where Middlesex under-14s were interested in me. I was being taught off-spin by the lovely Gordon Jenkins, who was an old Welsh off-spinner. And he got me properly mm. pivoting on my left yeah. foot as mm. in the delivery stride and turning up and around myself. And and we went on like that for a couple of Easters until he just, he just suddenly, in a blinding flash of light, he just realised why it wasn't going to go any further because I simply couldn't spin the ball. I was just a sort of gentle wrist spinner. I never really got my fingers wrapped around it. Anyway, as you rightly say, we lived close to Lords. We used to go up there, Gareth and I, with my dad. Watkin would take us to the Benson and Hedges finals. That was always a thing. Then the Nat West final. He was an MCC member, so we had yeah. Rover tickets and we wander around. We were always late. It was always good fun. And I know cricket because I've played since the age of eight. And any Brit who's played cricket that long will, you know, that will be a lifelong interest. I love it. I love it. I think you said, didn't you once say, nothing makes you cry like sport? Well, I, I think I probably have said something like that. You know, I'm in the arts. I'm an actor and I, I produce and I create pieces of art. Sometimes they're just pieces of entertainment. If you're lucky, you create a piece of art every now and then. You can move people, provoke people. They're open to interpretation. There's something about the sheer hard work a top-level athlete has to put in and then they win or they lose. What happens on the day is right or it's wrong. I love that. I find that sort of binary experience incredibly moving. There's no grey area. You can mm. perform well, but, you know, if you're Brett Lee 
and Andrew Flintoff, you know, Andrew Flintoff has got his hand on the other guy's shoulder and is offering his hand and Brettley's on his haunches, just distraught. It's very, very moving. So battles are lost and won and the hours of pain and training given over to your skill in, in all weathers, mm. at all times, putting your body and your mind through unbelievable stress to come up short at the final moment. Very moving. I think the sequence was something like he lifts up Michael Vaughan, who sort of grabs him by the ears. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, you know, they've won the game to level the series at 1-1, perhaps the tightest Ashes match Certainly, perhaps the most thrilling Ashes match, no tighter than one or two others. But, and then he moved to Bretley, yeah, yeah. and so he found the space in his mind to think of somebody else. I thought it was a remarkable bit of chivalry, and, and gave one a lot of faith in the game. I thought. Now, I want to ask you a question. Dying to ask you this question because from the Guildhall's school, I think you've spent time with the RSC, so you're classically trained. And theatre is your, but I'm sure you've been asked it a lot, but it is interesting that you've become so big in television. I will tell you, my, my first meetings with a camera were awkward and ungainly. I, I, in my last year of drama school, before I left, I won a job with Rick Mayle and um, ended up with Rick and this camera, this big thing, object pointing at me, and I had no understanding of where to look, who to talk to, how not to look in the camera, where would the other actor stand? Why was everyone suddenly not in the place that we were when we shot the big wide shot? And that seemed more like a play. We could all just stand in a room and chat to each other. Now suddenly the camera's pointing only at me and everyone's disappeared behind the camera. And where have they all gone? And... Are we now going to do the scene and do we do it with everyone standing in these new positions? I knew absolutely nothing and kept looking down the lens. So I just learnt on the job. And it wasn't until I'd done that. I'd done a couple of... I'd done a Poirot and a Frost and I'd been to the Royal Shakespeare Company by then and I'd played Hamlet and I'd played Romeo and I was really set on the course that I, I had imagined I would go on, which was to be a big theatre actor, which is where my passion was. But my head was turned by friends of mine, actually, contemporaries who were making films and making big TV shows in other parts of the world. I thought, Christ, this, I had no idea this was available to, to everybody. And I just want to go to Stratford and speak Shakespeare and wear a pair of tights. And that seems all right to me. And, and yet, you know, my friend <laughs> Joseph is making Shakespeare in love and my friend Ewan has just made a film called Train Spotting and these guys are now great film stars and my god how I had no idea that we could do that truth is of course not everyone can and <laughs> they were exceptionally lucky but I remember making Warriors with Peter Kosminski and um just saying to Peter, you know, look after me. I don't feel confident in front of the camera. And this was six or seven years after I'd come out of drama school. And he said, don't worry, I will. And Peter is the master of naturalist performance and non-acting. And he did look after me. And I learned a lot on that. And of course, we met up again when he directed Wolf Hall and directed me as Henry. But 
it was from that moment that I started to understand the camera. And very shortly after that, mm. I was asked to be in Band of Brothers. And by that stage, I felt totally confident. Once I worked out how you use the camera, I felt immediately confident with it. It was a little dance. You could use the camera as a third person in the scene. Of course, you have to forget that it's there and just be in the scene with your scene partner. But I did know how to use it simultaneously. And that just happened. Yeah. That, Major Dick Winters, is the first of your American accents that people have... Yeah, been so. Turned out you know, to be my only American accent, but anyway, let's not split hairs. No, I don't think. No, no, it was your only Pennsylvanian one. I'm interested in these American accents. We all are. They're bloody good, a and and b. The subtle differences between Dick Winters and Nicholas Brody, and and then you know Bobby, the New Yorker. They're all subtle enough to need mastering to be something you're hugely confident about the nuances of somebody else's accent properly applied? Well, I think I do hear them. And that's probably just luck. I have that facility. Whether that's having a musical ear, which I I have a little bit of, maybe that's, that's, that's where it comes from. Did you imitate sports commentators when you grew up? I did a lot of interviews in front of the mirror with Terry Wogan when I yeah. was a 10-year-old, yeah. I mean, just sort of standing in the bathroom when I didn't want to go to sleep. My parents had sent me to bed, yeah. And I would use all accents, American accents yeah. and this, that and the other. And, yeah. you know, I have a godfather who I adore who is American and spent a lot of time with him as a child and... Half of my family all moved to America and we used to go and visit them in America. I suppose there was American influences always uh, and accents around mm. in my childhood. Yeah, I mean, the reason I've been asked to do them subsequently since Band of Brothers is because I think nobody knew it at the time, but 2000, 2001 was right at the vanguard of this golden age of, of TV that we've all been wallowing in for the last 20 years, because as I was making Band of Brothers, HBO, bless them, were also making The Wire and Sex and the City, and TV just had a different feel to it suddenly. And, you know, Band of Brothers was the most expensive TV show ever made at that time, but it had the ambition of filmmaking. It wasn't, it wasn't on wobbly sets on the back lot of a film studio in LA, in Hollywood. It was proper location, ambitious filmmaking but it was just going to go out on a smaller screen. And then TV just continued to be that. And as film became more and more about son et lumière, about spectacle and this, which I have to say is one of the most brilliant franchises of all time, but the Marvel franchise, those films have been are the best version, the most intelligent, most moving, most beautifully crafted versions of a popcorn movie that I think you'll find. I think they're brilliantly done. But it was nevertheless that kind of film which was suddenly dominating. Mm. And, and so there was room in TV to make, essentially make independent film as a TV series. And mm. it's just a massive, I think, stroke of luck. I happened to be in one of the great successes of the period right at the beginning of this journey for tv yeah not so much with band of brothers but in the others they've been emotionally traumatic roles keen was a very interesting film for those that don't know it's about a, a schizophrenic father who stalks the port authority bus terminal in new york searching for a daughter that he may 
or may not have lost. And it's it's quite challenging to watch, never mind, I can imagine, for you to act in. And I kept thinking to myself, God, you know, weeks of this, this and then Homeland, and the guy must be heading towards insanity. I mean, they're very demanding roles. And how much do you live in them? Or are you lucky enough to be able to walk away? I think I do live in them to an extent. I'm not a method actor in that I need to sleep only in a concrete cell, you know, for two months when I'm playing a prisoner. Some people like to do that. Um, I like to do a lot of research. I do a lot of reading and try to find real life samples of what it is that I'm portraying. Okay. That's always something to hook on to. What do you mean by that? Just give me an example. Would, would you, for example, when you play Bobby Axelrod in Billions, would you go and hang out on the trading floor or, or with hedge funders, or for example, is that what you're sort of meaning? Uh, yes, that's exactly what I did. Yeah, I no. met. Oh, right. okay. I met billionaires. Right. Yeah, and billionaires oh, right. in that world, in short and long selling, in the in the hedge fund business. And I I met activists. Bobby is an activist. There are things that I learned talking to each of those people which exist in Bobby. And then you remember that it's a fictional character and it's heightened. And you need to pay respect to the script. You know, you need to know the story you're telling as an actor. So don't sort of run away with yourself just creating some great sort of creation that actually has nothing to do with the story you're in. Always come back to the story and the script. But there are lots of things I borrowed. OK, just a short break for a word from our sponsors. Welcome back. I'm Mark Nicholas and you're listening to Not Just Cricket. Let's get back to the interview. How much is an actor at your level now able to ongoingly tinker and adapt a script to suit your own interpretation? I, I, almost the most withering moment I've seen is that you're donning the suicide bomber's jacket in Homeland and the sweat beginning to... I mean, you've, I, I can't think I've ever seen tension like it on television. And, and I wonder how much of that is you and how much is the director and... Well, that me. was a controversial moment, actually, because in discussion with the writers, it was my understanding that Nicholas Brody was not radicalised in the pure sense of the word. He was an emotional being and he had wanted to exact revenge on the US government for the bombing of the school where he had been teaching and growing a relationship with these young children. And um, when... The writers came to me, Alex Ganter came and said, look, we want him to put on a suicide vest. It was something I was very resistant to, actually, initially. I said, well, that image is so iconic, it's so politicised now. He can be nothing other than a radicalised jihadist. You know, he doesn't look like a unibomber. It's not the story we're telling. We're talking about a guy who lived as a prisoner of war for seven years with a fundamentalist Islamist. So I resisted it to start with, and I was quite wrong because... The image of it was as powerful as they all thought it would be. The Homeland was very tightly scripted, so I have to give the credit, you know, all the build to that moment is because of the skill of the writers and our director, Michael Quester, who just absolutely was is a first-rate director and knows what he was doing. And from there on, it's yours. But so you, what you're saying is you challenged him. You said, I don't want to do it like this. I, I think it's symbolic in, in a way that 
with which we shouldn't be associated, and he explained to you, he talked you round. That's the long and the short of that, is it? Because you could fall out, presumably, in situations like that. Yeah, you could. But listen, my working policy, really, on those long-running TV shows is there's so much is demanded of you as the actor. And I've been lucky enough to work with people whom I trust, who are all very good at what they do on both Billions and Homeland. Sure, I could look at a script each week, send notes back and discuss it. Every now and again, one of your notes would be listened to and changed. But mostly on an American TV show, there are five or six people in a writing room and almost one of those six people will have thought of it already, would have brought that up already, and it's been discarded for whatever reason. And writers, they're working bloody hard too, you know, and they're quite reluctant, mostly, to go back and have to change things because the actor has come at a later date and said... I think this needs changing or looking at again. They're already writing four episodes ahead by that point and they don't want to have to unpack it if they don't need to. Sometimes there's just a mistake. Rarely there's just a bad bit of writing. It doesn't make sense, you know, and, and for some reason no one has spotted it and then you point it out and you can go forward together. But unless I've taken a position as a co-producer or an executive producer, I find I'm happy on the whole turning up to act. And then you have just a good relationship with the people you work with. You've worked with some exceptional actors. Who do you most like to work with? Who you know, you know, spent a long time with Claire Danes. You've been with Mark Rylance and Jonathan Price and Claire Foy and many others. You know, who are your great mates in that business? I have been lucky. You're right. The great thing about acting is it is, at its best, a game of tennis. You know, you hit a ball with a bit of topspin. You want it to come back with a bit of topspin or it might come back with a bit of slice. And that's how the conversation goes. It's when the ball doesn't really come back because you're working with someone who's more interested in just their own performance than working with you and throwing it back and forth. That's when it's less interesting. Everyone is working in this hermetically sealed way. So nothing surprising will ever happen. All those actors you've mentioned are all brilliantly open, spontaneous, witty actors. And by witty, I mean they they work on their wits. If I saw any of them, we'd always have a hug and a chat, always. Especially with people you've spent a long time with where there's been a really intense engagement and they obviously something sits deeper in you with them because you've spent more time with them. But um, there's a slight sort of water boatman aspect to actors' personalities, skate along off to the next Transient. thing, skate to the next mm. thing. Yeah, gypsies, gypsies. But not so with Helen McCrory. No, she stayed. She stayed. I have to ask you, because I genuinely don't know the answer. Did you meet on a set? We met, I'm afraid, yes, in a, in a rather clichéd way. We got together, I should put it that way, in a rehearsal room, yes, rehearsing a play at the Almeida Theatre. The play had its problems, but we... We made the most of it. Let's let's put it that way. And thought we were being very secretive and quite clever about the whole thing. But obviously everyone around us knew. They told us later. But I had first seen her on stage in Uncle Vanya in Sam Mendes' production at the Donmar. And when she walked on stage, the audience held its breath. It was quite amazing. She just held the audience in her palm of her hand as she crossed the stage almost in slow motion. She glided across the stage. 
And I was watching it with my father and I just, we've got to go around and just congratulate her. I, I have to meet her effectively. I was then in LA a few months later and I was just sitting in LA reading one not very good script after another and Michael Attenborough sent me this script for the Almeida Theatre and he said, Damon, darling, I want you to come and do this thing. And I said, oh God, yes, it's fantastic. It's uh, poetic. And I said, you know, of course, who should play the girl in it? And he said, who, darling? I said, Helen McCrory. And he said, that's exactly who we were thinking of. He says, why don't you call her? So I did. I called her and I persuaded her to do it. And from the from the very from the very start, she wasn't really sure about it, or me, and uh, she's still not entirely sure about me. So the jury is very much out every day. <laughs> well, listen, you keep coming back to Tufnell Park and Suffolk, and I mean, you you could hang out in Hollywood, but you don't. I like the fact that you you go home, that London and Suffolk are, are home, and you keep coming back. And I love the fact that last year when we bumped into each other after lockdown finished in the summer. You told me, you'd, I think you said you'd been supporting Feed NHS. Yes, we. Uh, I in March, I'd been working quite hard when we went into lockdown. And so I was one of these people who was rather thankful for lockdown. We'd all just sit in one place and just melt on the spot for for a few weeks and get our heads back. But right at that moment, Helen and I, along with John Vincent and Leon Restaurants, decided in our wisdom and with Matt Lucas to start a charity which was called Feed NHS and we started raising money in the traditional ways with a fundraising page and before we knew what had happened we had a million and a half quid and Mm. over the next six, seven, eight weeks we ended up feeding a hundred different hospitals across the country 40,000 meals a day and it had all come about through a conversation with a friend of great friend of ours called Bob who was who's a senior figure at St Mary's Paddington and the Imperial Trust. And just talking to him in the street one day, he lives around the corner from us, he just said, we're very good at looking after patients at the NHS. We don't really know how to look after ourselves. Have you got any ideas how we could eat? Simply (laughs) what he said. And that's what took us off to Leon. And Mm. John at Leon was already thinking of doing something similar and I think had started something already. And we we just joined forces and... That's what happened. And it was a hell of a lot of hard work, actually, and not a very restful time in the end. But I'm very, very glad we did it. And I'm very proud of what we did. Yeah, very difficult time for everybody in the arts, as it has been for sport. But sport has been able to get up and running. It can play in front of nobody. You must feel for your fellows. And indeed, you know how difficult a readjustment has been for you. Have you kept busy or, or have you stepped back a bit? Oh, well, it's it's probably a mixture of the two, Mark. Um, have I at times uh, wanted to, uh, you know, go into a small dark room and uh, <laughs> and scream yeah. at times? Have I just loved being at home knowing that no one's doing anything, so it's great, we can all relax. But of course, yeah, the arts has struggled desperately and, and people in theatre have struggled and friends of mine, of course, who rely almost entirely on theatre income have nothing. So it's it's a bit bleak for some. We're almost done. I, I want this story on the Not Just Cricket podcast. So I'm going to implore you to tell it because Homeland got you dinner at the White House <laughs> with the president. Homeland did. That's right. It was a cultural visit, I think they were calling it. 
David Cameron was there. And yeah, we were invited. So Helen, it was Etonians only asked, was it? Yes, David? only, quite. We were invited because Homeland was one of the president's favourite shows. And um, Helen and I got invited to the White House and we giggled like teenagers and stood in front of oil paintings of Jackie O and others and took selfies and sniggered as we waited in line to go and meet the president. And we... Uh, ushered through into the White House past the amazing cherry blossoms and I got to the president and um, I just said, um, sir, it's great to meet you, Mr. President, and we're busy about to start writing season three of Homeland and on behalf of all the writers, if you've got any plans to go into Iran, could you just please let us know? <laughs> and uh, his eyes almost popped out of his head and then because Obama is always ready and is a great improviser and funny he just looked at me squeezed my hand just a little bit harder lent in and went you'll be the first to know like that <laughs> and as he said that i could just see out of my the corner of my eye this enormous mountain of a man whose hand went to his earpiece he said someone's talking to the president about iran someone mentioned iran <laughs> and i just felt this sort of great meat cleaver of a hand wallop me on the side of my ass. Uh, he just, I was sort of shoved down the line out of the way. So that's quite enough. Quite enough of that. But I didn't get the impression it was an official dinner. I realise it wasn't the six of you in the kitchen, but were there more than the six of, of you there? Yes, it wasn't just, uh, you know, Michelle didn't, you know, hadn't just whipped up her world famous chicken curry. And uh, no, there were 400 people there. And that's why when Helen and I walked in down onto the South Lawn and we just saw all these tables, we thought, well, we better just look for the table next to the loose because we're bound to be next to the swinging door into the toilet. We went to look at the table plan and we were still there 10 minutes later as everyone found their table and walked past us. And someone came up to us and said, uh, Mr. Lewis, Ms. McCrory, are you OK? Can I help you? And we said, yeah, we're just looking for our table, but we don't seem to be able to. Oh, maybe and then we thought, oh, maybe they've just forgotten to put our names on it. And he said, yes, you're sitting here at uh, table number one. And we looked <laughs> at table number one. Sure enough, Helen was next to David Cameron, who was, you know, one away from Michelle and Sam Cam and, and I was directly opposite the president next to Warren Buffett, which was absolutely astonishing. It was just one of those odd heightened experiences when you were sitting with people who don't read the news. They are the news. It was a wonderful night. Damien Lewis, you've given us more than enough of yourself. Fantastic. Absolutely loved listening to you. And thank you very much for, for spending an hour on this dark and damp winter's evening. Yes. Thanks very much, Mark. Huge thanks again to Damien. He's a proper star, that man, a brilliant actor, and whatever he tells you, a more than decent cricketer. Next up is a Yorkshireman once a good enough batsman to keep Sir Geoffrey Boycott out of the Barnsley team. His career, of course, evolved away from cricket and into newspapers, radio, and television, where he received global accolade. Yes, it's Sir Michael Parkinson next week, a man who is nothing if not a national treasure. You can subscribe to Not Just Cricket in this feed or on any other platform where you find your podcasts and expect new episodes every Thursday. This is a Message Heard production. Our producer is the ever-vigilant Eva Krisiak and the music is composed by Matt Huxley. 